I think we're live uh, on Twitter. I apologize. We're five minutes late. Had a little bit of technical difficulties. We have an awesome guest today. Isaac Hess is joining us on location from California. Isaac, how are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Uh, Isaac is a former left-handed pitcher. Um, we actually crossed paths in indie ball, though we weren't really aware of it at the time. And uh, Isaac is uh, the owner of Made Baseball out in California. And we actually have a new uh, entrepreneurial endeavor that's going on now, cagelist.com. Tell me about that a little bit. Uh, yeah, thanks. It's uh, just, you know, as instructors, if uh, you don't go the route of, um, you know, creating an indoor facility like you guys both have experience with, and, and just trying to tackle that whole idea. Um, that wasn't something that was super appealing for me. And finding, finding places to train my players that are affordable just have never been that easy. So I've always used parks, which is always kind of sketchy. And, and um, it works. But I figured I wanted to try to create a place where the average middle-class American can create a batting cage in their backyard and, you know, usually that's a project anywhere from one to $5,000, depending on how nice you want it to be. Um, so figured if, you know, I created this marketplace that people could go on cage list, find batting cages in their neighborhood and be able to rent them out for affordable prices. So these, these, Amer- these people that have batting cages in their backyard are able to make money off of their space when they are not utilizing it for their own kids. So a little bit like Airbnb, but kind of for batting cages. Exactly. Um, So just created it and just launched it, working on it this week, trying to get the word out, trying to get, you know, people to list their their batting cage and see see what happens. But my my goal is to get at least 50 cages over the next couple months. Um, You know, it's kind of the chicken and the egg right now. So I got to get some inventory. I got to get some people to sign up. And then once it starts becoming more of a household name, for me, I don't know about, I, I'd love to hear you guys' opinion, but for me, it's a no-brainer, like, especially as a baseball coach. Um, so, like, if, you know, if there's, a, if there's a guy that has a batting cage right down the street from me and it's, and it's just as good as far as training my players, it has all the resources I need, and it's even cheaper than the place that's in L.A., you know, that I got to drive 40 minutes to, that's probably double the price. For me, it's a no-brainer that I'm going to try to start utilizing that one. Yeah, that's interesting. that makes sense. Also, no, everyone, Bobby, season, no, Bobby Stevens yeah. is here. <laughs> hey, Bobby. Thanks, how are you? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Go ahead. You know what's interesting about, uh, about that is I feel like you probably have a bigger market with just a dad that's looking for a batting cage for his son. Exactly. Maybe not to instruct. You know, as an instructor, uh, obviously, you instruct. Dan does. Uh, I still do some instruction. Uh, we have our spots, you know, there might be a time where we get in the jam where we need a spot to give a lesson or, uh, you know, do some instruction. But if I was a dad, you know, I, there's, where do they go? Where do these guys go with their, with their kids? You know, if you go to local park, I think it'd be great for someone that's just the average, you know, baseball parent probably would, would really take advantage of, of what, what you're trying to do. Right. And I mean, that's, that was really what I was thinking from the beginning. It is, it is also for coaches, but if, if you, if you like drive by and you see that there's a batting cage in the backyard of your neighbor down the street, you look and you're like, Oh, sweet. What am I going to do? Go knock on his door and ask him if I can rent it out. Yeah. I mean, that's a possibility, but if I know that cage list exists, I can go see if he's on cage list. And then I never have to worry about bugging him. All I have to do is go on just like Airbnb you know, read, look at the pictures, 
read the listing, see if it has what I need, um, you know, because it can cater to softball or baseball, depending on whatever is available and whatever the, the cage owner sets it up as. But then I can pay online and then I can reserve it. And, you know, assuming there's a side yard, you can be eating dinner and, you know, having multiple people come in, in your backyard and it's going to be on a it's going to be on like a review basis, you know, so you're going to be able to see who it is that is uh, wanting to rent your cage. They also have the option of um, registering as a Facebook user, which essentially, you know, validates you, uh, your identity and everything. So you look up there and it looks like it, if the cage owner feels like the person's spammy, then they don't have to accept it. If they, you know, see that it's a normal baseball player or a dad that has a, a legitimate uh, profile, then they can accept the, the booking and go from there. Yeah. So I think it's an interesting idea. Um, obviously you're texting me about it over Instagram. At first I didn't understand cause I thought it was for, um, you know, like facilities, but so I guess the, again, I think this is worth talking about not because a, if you're listening, this is not an infomercial for Isaac's thing. This is, it's, it's interesting because what all of us are doing in the industry right now, like we don't have our facilities open. If we have a facility, everyone's sort of way of life is disrupted. So this whole idea of like, what can we do now and, and unique entrepreneurship ideas and thinking outside the box, I think is a really relevant discussion right now. So like this, I think is a really relevant thing for this time right now, because there might be homeowners that have a batting cage that would like the extra income. I'm, I'm sure that there are. Right. And there's probably kids that like don't can't go to their facility right now who would love a place to go. So, um, it's a, it, it, this is like a unique time, obviously, in the world with all the coronavirus stuff going on. But what are, what are some of the challenges? Because me thinking out loud, you're going to have challenges with, number one, getting – you have two different people that you need to get for every transaction. Like you need to get, like you said, cage owners, and then you need people to be aware that people listed these cages. That's a lot of traffic you need. And then also, who deals with like the consumables, like baseballs? Um, like batting tees, stuff like that, like liability, all that sort of stuff. Like that, that seems like another big, um, a big challenge. So like, what are you doing with making sure they have baseballs, making sure they have like a decent tee? Like how do you, how do people know and, and how do you sort of keep quality up? So it's it, the idea that I have is it's going to be just, just the same as Airbnb, you know, like if you're trying to make an Airbnb, you're going to, you know, in the beginning, you're not going to know exactly what you need to do. Over time, you're going to figure out what the people are, what, what their feedback is and what they want. So if you're not a huge baseball person and you just created a, a batting cage, you know, then you're going to have to figure out that you need – it's going to be better if you have a nice bucket of baseballs. It's going to be better if you have a nice bucket of softballs. Um, ideally, a pitching machine for baseball and a pitching machine for softball. Now, these are all, like, solid investments up front as far as the pitching machine. Um, but if you have all those things and you can cater to all the people that are in your, in your network and you, and you know, in your locality, <clears throat> and then ideally you're going to be the one that is positioning yourself as the cage to use because of the resources that you have. So, and then, you know, the better the pictures you take, the more appealing it is, the more likely the people are going to choose your cage, especially if it's fairly priced and you know, the, de the demand is going to just work itself out just like Airbnb. As far as insurance goes, that's something where, I just have it set that we're not liable, but this week is, is yeah. uh, this week I'm, I'm working on a blanket insurance policy, but I didn't want to like have to feel like everything had to be perfect before I launched it. I wanted to put it out there now and just start getting people to know about it and um, kind of just get user feedback, you know, 
we all know as entrepreneurs that if you're waiting to be perfect, you're you're just procrastinating. So I just figured get it get a minimum viable product out there and see see what the feedback is. And I didn't see anything like this that existed before. Um, so I figured I'm just trying to create a solution for a legitimate problem that I've had personally. So yeah, that makes sense, Bobby. What yeah. about what? What do you think? It's going to be a you know I think we're it's going to be tough to to I don't want to say find the people that have batting cages. We definitely have people that have batting cages. Uh, you know whether we got a small private facility. What I'm in Chicago, so it's a huge market. I think it's the people getting it out to people that are going to know about it. You know I could send it out to my organization or your you could send it out to yours or Dan's got a mailing list or you know what have you, but to get it to like the casual kid whose parents, you know, sign him up for little league, that's going to be tough. Like to make those, that networking. Um, and then can you expand into like basketball or, you know, tennis Does somebody have a, you know, a tennis, private tennis access or private basketball access, or maybe it's just basketball hoop at their house yeah. or, you know, maybe even municipalities that have open gyms, um, you know, there's probably, there's a few ways to go with it. I think you've got, you've got some, some wiggle room to bounce into different sports or, or kind of make it like a booking app for all open, you know, open recreation. So right. baseball is a start. Obviously we've got all three of us have background in baseball, but there's probably, I gotta imagine a need for this and all the, all other kinds of sports, lacrosse, tennis, you know, uh, basketball, stuff like that where you could probably it, make a dent. That actually was my original idea. I tried to, I, I started a, uh, a different idea called sport locale, but I, you know, I was going to have archery because like for those people that are archers, you know, if they get, if they happen to be into that and there is a place that has a big backyard and the targets and the even bows and somebody that's an enthusiast, then if they have all that equipment, it's a no brainer that you just go rent all that stuff possibly. But I just want I had like 10 different categories to start. And then I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to water it down. I want to do this for the baseball and softball community. I'm going to focus only on this for now, but I also got hoop list. So that would be, that was going to be my second one after this. So um, hopefully, you know, this takes off and then I'll just do exactly the same thing with, with uh, basketball. I just think there's a lot less, people that have basketball courts in their backyards that would a need the additional revenue. If they have a basketball court in their backyard, they likely don't need extra money. I mean, everybody would possibly be willing to have it, especially now with the economy and everything. But I think uh, batting cages, there's so many middle class dads whose 10 year old realizes he loves baseball dad gets that feeling like you guys both know you know the kid went four for four with three doubles and gets in the car and now he wants to be a professional baseball player yep, so the dad yep. says how do i facilitate this i'm going to get lessons i'm going to do this i'm going to do that he's like i want to make a batting cage i have the space in my backyard and oh crap wife says we can't afford that you know it's five thousand dollars he says well i can put it on cage list and after a year it's paid for itself and it's an additional income stream and if you're hustling at it, like the way that I put it out there is, you know, if you're hustling at it, then you could easily be making upwards to twelve to fifteen thousand dollars extra a year. So even more yeah. than that, depending on where you're at and what the, you know, how much 
stuff you have to offer and all those things. So we'll see how yeah. it goes. Yeah. Well, good Appreciate luck. You guys That's, talking uh, about it. Yeah. Well, like I said, like if this was just like you pitching your thing, like we wouldn't be talking about it, but I think it's an interesting idea. And then, like, like I said, in this, in this climate, just I, like, I'm sure a lot of the baseball softball parents that are listening are probably thinking about like, Oh yeah, like that might make sense for me. Um, and this was, like I said, this was not like on the plan of talking points. I just think it's an interesting idea that you sent my way the other day. So, so yeah, I mean, like all of us in this room have our own entrepreneurial things going on. So, you know, I think it's just part of, um, and I, honestly, I think that our, our industry needs more people doing stuff on the web. Like I I've, agree. I've complained to various people. It's like, why am I like one of four like people on YouTube that consistently put out like baseball stuff. Like there's a lot of baseball players, but not as many people doing stuff on YouTube. Right. And, and, and like same goes for blogging, same goes for lots of different stuff on the web. There's just like a very disproportionate number of very smart former players to how many are actually like putting out stuff on the web or doing that kind of stuff. So it's just, it's kind of strange, but that's probably going to change now. So we gotta, we gotta be on our game. Yeah, no, I, I think, I mean, I've been impressed with, with all the stuff that you've been putting together. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different beasts to tackle and you got to be willing to grind it out and figure out the tech and figure out, you know, whatever you got to do in addition to being consistent with the content calendar and all that stuff. I mean, I've, I've been pretty good about being able to get lessons and, and be able to forge a, a life with baseball only now and just full-time coaching. But I've always struggled with putting together consistent content, you know, and, yeah. and getting it out there too. But that's, that's another, th I mean, I talk to my players, like when I'm doing my virtual classes right now, I, I've actually spoke to like my 10 year olds about the idea of being an entrepreneur. And like, I knew that I never wanted to have a boss. I didn't want to work for anybody else. But at the same time, when I was a, a minor leaguer, I can't tell you how many hours I wasted on the bus that I was playing words with friends or just doing jack nothing, you know, and I could have been learning uh, about different various things that I'm interested in now. And if I would have been taking that time or had had guidance, had a mentor telling me how valuable those hours were on the bus, then, you know, I, I totally feel like I would have been in a launching position after I got done playing baseball instead of feeling like I had to start learning it all from there, you know. Yeah. Bobby, what did you do on the back of the bus, by the way, during your career? I was a, I was a front of the bus guy. I don't, I don't, I don't fraternize at the back of the bus. Nerd. Literally Loser. right behind the trainer. Sleep. I'm not sleep the whole bus ride. Eight hour bus ride. No problem sleeping. Or if we, we had a card game going on, definitely play cards. You know, I, I kind of think the opposite of uh, what Isaac was saying is you, like in hindsight, it's a great idea, right? You, you use your free time to further, you know, other interests that you have, uh, whatever they may be. But I almost take the, the thought process of if I'm, you know, I'm on the bus, like if I'm not doing something that's going to help me perform on the field, like we all had, we all were, I feel like singularly focused during our playing careers uh, to be the best player we could be. You know, obviously Dan, you have other interests, Isaac, you know, I had other interests as well, but you know, during the season I was basically enthralled in, my own personal baseball career. So I, you know, I find it looking back. Yes. Those hours on the bus would have been awesome to have, you know, the wasted time is, you know, that we can only, we only have so much time in life, but I don't know if I would 
of change what I was doing on the bus or change what I was doing in my downtime because I was, you know, I felt like I did have a goal and I was always working towards that goal of, you know, getting to the next level, getting to the big leagues, whatever, getting better at baseball. You know, I, it's tough for me to look back and think, man, I, I could have been, you know, refining my editing skills or refining, you know, my, my online uh, platform without also creeping into my mind, like I'm already on the, on the way out of baseball. And, it, you know, from a confidence standpoint, I think that would have, that that would have been a little too, it would have been different. I don't know how, I don't know how it would have reacted in the moment um, as I was trying to like basically plan for my life after baseball. You know, I don't think it's a bad thing to do that. I just think where, where I might've been at personally would have been a conflicting, uh, conflicting with, you know, what my goal was at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it depends on the way you frame it mentally. Like for me, I was as dedicated as anyone. I think all three of us would say the same thing. It's not like I was less dedicated than you, but I was writing, I was writing freelance articles for tnation.com and bodybuilding.com. Not because I like needed the money, but because it was a thing I was doing consistently. So I was turning in, like I wrote like one or two articles a month for about three years freelance for those two fitness sites. And I, I just like, it didn't do anything. It didn't like, Oh, I'm preparing for when I, don't make it to the big leagues. Like it wasn't that it was just like, I have eight hours on this bus. I mean, just cause Bobby's sleeping doesn't make those hours more like it. Just cause that's you're not frame, doing something right? that's not baseball. doesn't make it take you away from baseball. Well, that's you know the frame, I mean? right? Like I just like my, in my frame, like my headspace, I was like, I wasn't really focused on anything outside of baseball, like better or worse. Right. Whatever. Uh, I read, like I, I always had a book on the bus, you know, you know, cards was kind of the, a hobby essentially like take your mind off of baseball. Like for you, writing was a hobby, you know, not, not necessarily looking towards, you know, getting out of baseball and getting into writing, you know, the way I was framing it in my, in like looking back on my own playing career was okay. I'm like, I'm going to devote my energy to this. Like maybe, that's what, and I don't know if it's if it was true or not. Like if I go back in time, and I, I don't think it would have taken me away from anything I was doing baseball wise. But looking back, it's it's easy to say I could have I could have acquired some skills on the bus. But you also forget like that time on the bus. You're doing other things. Like you're in your own head. Especially it's hard. As a, it's hard as a for player. sure. Yeah, it's hard because the you frame are distracted. It, it's a lot of guys. We had uh, you and I were in a group message with with Zach Clark, who we're going to talk to a little bit later. And uh, he was talking about two guys we played with that were writing songs. And that was like their outlet of, they obviously weren't necessarily trying to be musicians. They were just doing something to pass the time, a little bit of a hobby, uh, screwing around, you know, in their downtime. So it's, it's not right or wrong. It's, I, you know, I wish I would have had maybe a, maybe a plan for when I got out of baseball, you know, a little bit different or been more set up for something, but that time on the bus is those are long hours. That's uh, that's mindless. Like if you can put those to productive use, you've got, you know, you're ahead of the game. But it's regardless. not just, a, it's not just the bus. I mean, when you wake up at, you know, it's important to sleep a lot when you're a baseball player and you're playing every day. But at the same time, when you wake up and you know, you don't have to be on the bus again until two, you're like, how do I kill three hours? That's the way I was looking at it a lot of times. I wasn't – when we wake up now, we have 8,000 things to do on our to-do list because we're trying to hustle. And, I mean, we're doing everything we can to to uh, be great. I think 
we were doing that in in our baseball careers, but we weren't really thinking like entrepreneurs. And I kind of feel like I wish I had somebody telling me, hey, Isaac, you know, if you want, you can be giving lessons in the off season and you could be doing this consistently. Even after your first year of baseball, if you played one year of professional baseball, there's a lot of people out there that would want to go and listen to what you have to say and they would pay you for your time. And you wouldn't have to scramble when you get out of your season. You know, you just – I made $600 a month my first year. And, you know, I had to figure out how to get a serving job right when I finished that first season. And each year it was like make make it work until the next season. You know, it wasn't – but if I would have thought about it, like I'm going to start doing lessons. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I have a valuable service here. I grind my butt off here. I, I work day after day. There's a lot of great value I can bring to any player here that's younger than me. And I can charge for my services, you know, it's on the rise. Everybody's looking for lessons all the time. It's not going down. You know, the irony of baseball is that the, the minimum wage has consistently risen each and every year, even through 2008 and through the economic recession. It's like it will withstand the test of time always. And it's going to continue to go up in this industry. And, you know, it's more and more specialized every year. So you know, if, if we're teaching minor leaguers to do that, you're not going to have so many guys that come out of the game throwing their hands up being like, well, what the heck do I do now? Which I think is the case for so many professional athletes, you know, the loss of identity and like the, the lack of direction and knowing where they want to go. Yeah. And I, I think that's a good point because it, what's been brought up in the last year with, um, you know, a lot of good articles like going to bat for minor leaguers and for their, their wages and you hear a lot of like the quotes from guys. It's like, I don't know how I'm, how I'm supposed to make this work. Um, you know, and, and you wonder like, well, are you, are you like trying to hustle on the side? Like you said, are you maybe trying to do something digitally? Like you wonder what some of the, the voices that you hear complaining, if they've actually done some of this stuff and maybe they all have, I don't know. But at the same time, a lot of times you hear people, I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet. And they just go to work from nine to five and they come home and it's like, well, for eons, people have worked three jobs to make ends meet. Like, is that what you're doing? Or are you just complaining about the one job that you have that doesn't quite pay enough to pay the bills? It just, I don't know. Yeah. And, uh, and like you said, there's always a way for people to figure it out. And a lot of guys do. There was a good article about, uh, I don't remember his name, but he was talking about how he was like doing, um, what was one of those delivery services? I don't think it was Instacart, but it was like one of those. But this guy, he, he, was, he had an article on, I think, MLB.com or Sports Illustrated where he was just saying like, yeah, like the season just got scrapped. This was like a month ago. And I went out and started driving for, you know, one of those services and I made like 600 bucks. And, um, you know, this is what I have to do because I don't know if the minor leagues are going to pay me, you know, like that guy's got the right attitude where he's like taking it into his own hands and finding a way right. to like get stuff done. And if you scour the web, there's a million places to make extra 10 bucks an hour, 20 bucks an hour, depending on what you want to do. I mean, there's a lot of places to do that. There's a little marketplace where you can, you know, like Fiverr, there's uh, the Amazon creative exchanges. Like I could, if I really needed to, I could narrate audiobooks. Like I've done it once. I've looked at it. I've thought about doing it. I could do that. You can make up to $400 an hour, depending on how good you are. I'm obviously not that good, but the point is like, to your point, you can find ways to make money and scrape together a living in a lot of different ways. And 
you wonder how many players have that mindset, which I think it was your original point. Like you can make use of those hours on the bus and do things to, to get it done. Right. I mean, and I mean, I didn't get my first iPhone until 2012. And I, I mean, I think it, it started in 2009, the iPhone, I don't know, maybe a little earlier, but now it's exponentially more available. There's marketplaces for everything now. So it's so much easier now to make ends meet, I think, but beyond making ends meet, I think it's important to be thinking about life past baseball, even if you are on the, the way to the big leagues. Um, I think it's important to allow, allow that thought to have a place in your existence because us as baseball players, that's what we identify with. That's what we're, we're all, we're all in the baseball field now after giving our lives every day and hoping for the chance to, to play in the big leagues one day. Um, but you know, I just think, I mean, you hear about NFL players too and stuff like half of them go broke after five years or something out of the, out of the league. And it's just, a, I think it's a, a issue for athletes in general. We're so dedicated to something and we're, when we're done, we sometimes don't have a clue where, where to start. So. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, Bobby, I know you went to, uh, where did you go overseas? Was it the Netherlands? After went you, to the Czech. I was in the actually Isaac went to the Czech too. We were talking right before we got on. Mm-hmm. Czech Republic, that was beautiful country. Yeah, it was a fun time. So I was in a small town. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot of baseball. You know, I've touched on this a little bit. I was it was in a small town of it felt like a college town. Um, you know, baseball over there is different. Those guys have jobs. They're playing. It's like a men's league almost. We're playing once. We were playing once a week. Uh, we were practicing Tuesday, Thursday, you know, I would throw batting practice Friday. It wasn't professional baseball like it is here. Like those guys, our starting catcher was on the Czech national team and he was also a programmer for a computer company. Like these guys were traveling to different countries during the week for their jobs. It was different. You know, the mindset of baseball over there is, was different. It's a, it's an afterthought sport, but it was a, you know, it was awesome. I would, any pro guys that are listening and I always tell them, the pro guys that I know, if they get a chance their last year to just, you know, American baseball is basically wipe their hands clean to those guys. If you get a chance to go overseas anywhere, it's, it's worth it. Definitely mm-hmm. worth it. You will never mm-hmm. regret doing that. Yeah. So, so Isaac, I want to dive into your story a little bit because one of the, the kind of themes that we had mocked up in the talking points of the show was kind of how baseball is not necessarily fair and your story definitely plays to that. So tell me about your hip and your path through pro baseball. <clears throat> All right. Um, well, I started, um, it started when I was seven. I woke up one night and I had a terrible pain. I couldn't go to the bathroom. I went to the doctor. I, I couldn't even make it to the bathroom because my leg was hurting so bad. I was in excruciating pain. We didn't know it was wrong. I went to the doctor with my family the next day and he told me I had something called leg calf perthes disease. <clears throat> it's a unique thing that happens to mostly boys from ages four to eight. One, one in 20,000 kids gets it statistically. So long story short, I kind of beat my hip up as an athlete throughout my, my youth. And by the time I was 19, I had a really like, uh, arthritic hip. It was, I had a lot of osteoarthritis and, and something called avascular necrosis where part of your 
femoral head dies because the, the, the blood flow doesn't go to where it's supposed to because the hip bone just doesn't develop properly. So I went to <clears throat> Washington State on a full ride scholarship only to be told the first day that I arrived there that I needed to quit baseball and I should try to get it. I should, I need to get a hip replacement, but I should try to wait it out until I was uh, 30 years old at least because hip replacements wear out. <clears throat> and there's, if you have to get a revisional surgery, it's like a much bigger risk um, for something bad to happen uh, over time. So you don't want to get two hip replacements. Heaven forbid you have to get a third revisional. So nobody wanted to clear me to play. I went to U of A actually my junior year after Washington state didn't clear me to play. I got the hip replacement. My doctor said, I wouldn't recommend you playing, but I can see that you are wanting to play. So it's possible. And that's all I really needed. And which U of A <clears throat> university of Arizona. So okay. I'm from Arizona originally, and they were interested in having me pitch there also uh, after my freshman year, but Washington State had offered me a full ride and told me I would be a weekend starter and I would be vying for the spot of the Friday night starter. So I was stoked on that, and I knew that my hip was in bad shape. I just had no idea that I was – I'd never even heard the word hip replacement before I went up to, to uh, get my physical at Washington State. So I was lost. I didn't know if I was going to keep playing. I ended up getting that second opinion over – the Christmas break that year at Washington state and my doctor, you know, told me it was possible. And so that's all I needed. I knew I wanted to play and I knew that I was waking up every day. I mean, when I was at my worst, I was eating like 12 ibuprofen a day just to get by. I had an ibuprofen in my backpack all the time. So, um, transferred to U of A started hitting up the coach, told him, you know, I'm going to be back by my senior year and I'll be better than ever. And I was, and he allowed me to throw a bullpen. I mean, I pestered that guy every week. I, I drove my bike. I rode my bike to his office, poked my head in and said, do you have a summer team for me to play on yet? And, uh, cause he told me he would get me one. You know, I was being that guy. I was being a professional pest. And as coaches, we, we, uh, as coaches, we, like it when a guy shows that he wants it, you know? So mm -hmm. if, he, if he is a pest, but he clearly just wants to keep, keep showing up and we want to, we want to do what we can to help him out. So that's what he did. He allowed me to throw a bullpen. I was throwing 88 to 90 again and good curveball. And then the doctors didn't clear me to play. They said that it, it was, it, it was too much of a liability. So I was lost. I didn't think I was going to be able to play anymore again. I had worked that whole time and then I was told that I couldn't play anymore. So I went to a, a tryout in March of 2007 for the White Sox. This one of those open tryouts right before spring training. Hadn't picked up a baseball for two months through like the best bullpen of my life. Touched 87, had a, had a scout call me over and say, you know, we could get you an invite to spring training, but there's no spots, blah, blah, blah here. There's no spots here, but we can get you an invite to spring training for an indie ball team in Chicago. Um, and I said, I'll take what I can get. I drove out to Chicago. I ended up making the team and the rest was kind of history after that. It's, I, I ended up not, I, I was able to play seven years. I got picked up by four different organizations. Um, but all four organizations said that I wasn't, going to get cleared to play just because of the fact that I had a hip replacement. So it was ironic because the very first team I played for in Windy City, I had to go 
with the general manager to the bank to get this one piece of paper notarized that said I wouldn't sue them if something happened to my hip. <laughs> and after that, like Indy Ball didn't care. Um, they, they were always okay with it. The doctors always looked at me each year with the physical and they're like, you have a hip replacement? What? They're like, all right, whatever. Like, if you can move and you're fine, that's fine. And because, I mean, nobody in the history of the game has ever played. Nobody in the history of professional sports has ever played with a professional or with a total hip replacement except for Bo Jackson. Um, that I'm aware of. I mean, if anybody's listening out there and they know of another person that has played a professional sport with a total hip replacement other than golf, I would love to know who it is. Um, there's another guy named Floyd Landis, who you guys might have heard that name. He was a biker, you know, like uh, Lance Armstrong. So or a cyclist, but yeah, I mean, and I found the guy that rehabbed Bo Jackson back to his playing again after a hip replacement. Um, his name was Mac Newton and he was like my life coach and teacher and rehab specialist out in Arizona. And that guy has a double hip replacement and yet his like first son at the age of 68 years old. He's just this crazy man. That's super motivational. And, and, uh, he, he, I trained with him and I was training with him, Matt Kemp, Junior Spivey at the time. That was after my first year of, of pro ball. And, um, yeah, after that, I just kept playing indie ball and kept trying. It got picked up by four different organizations, only to be told by each of the, like, basically the liability people that I wasn't going to get cleared to play because it was too too big of a risk to reward. You know? Yeah, and that's crazy. So how did you handle that? just mentally each time where you get signed, a new team says, Hey, we're going to sign you. They bring you in and then it doesn't work. I mean, four, four times is a lot. It was tough, man. Um, I, I mean, that's, that's how I ended up creating made, you know, made is a mindset, motivation, appreciation, dedication every day. Like I, I started looking at no after the first one. I started laughing when people would say no. And I just kept saying, you know, as corny or motivational as it is, like, okay, new opportunity again. No stands for new opportunity. If you're not going to be smart enough to sign me, then I'm going to get signed by the next person. And I mean, I would have played a lot longer than seven years, but eventually it was like I wanted I was I was in baseball to keep moving up. I wasn't trying to be a journeyman to go play in Europe for five years, you know, like or just bounce around indie ball knowing that nobody was going to take a chance, even if I was the best pitcher that I could possibly be. And, you know, I mean, I was nine and Oh at the all-star break in, um, 2009 for Victoria. I started the all-star game. A guy named Steve Peck came in the dugout and said, we want to sign you and send you to double a with the Red Sox. And I was like, you know, I have a hip replacement, right? Because that had already already happened twice up until that point. I was like, I want you to know that I do have a hip replacement and that I'm not hiding anything. And I want I don't want to fly to Boston to be told no. And he's like, nope, we know everything. It's all good. We're impressed. You know, like we're sending you to either high A or double A and probably double A. And he's like, I just need you to go to Boston, talk to our doctor, and you'll be good to go. And I was like, I said it one more time. I was like, okay, I just want you to know. And he's like, nope. And so I flew to Boston sat there and twiddled my thumbs for two days talk, after I talked to the doctor the first day. And he's like, you're, you're 24 and you have a hip replacement. He's like, you're not really supposed to be playing baseball. What's going on here? I was like, just let's cut to the chase. Are you going to clear me to play or not? And he's, he, he's like, I can't say yes yet. And I was like, Oh damn it. And 
<laughs> I, I knew I was going to have to come back and I ended up going back and <clears throat> it sucked because I was cruising that year too. I was nine and oh, and I finished nine and two. I was nine and oh at the all-star break. And then I was out for like two and a half weeks. You know, I just lost my flow and I just never really got it back for the rest of the season. But then I ended up playing in Mexico the next year because um, I figured um, playing internationally would be the only way I was actually going to start making some money. And I had a, an opportunity because my agent was helping me out. He was very connected in Mexico, a guy named Oscar Suarez. Um, so he got me at, to play in Mexico as a 24-year-old, which is pretty rare. Um, did decent there and actually was able to make a little bit of money there. Um, and then I was trying to go to Japan. I was actually signed to go play in an independent ball team in Japan with the hopes that I would be able to do what I could do in indie ball there and mm -hmm. maybe make it up to the big leagues. And then my goal was to circle back around to the big leagues, you know, after yeah. proving you could pitch in the big leagues there, then maybe somebody would take a chance. But the tsunami happened literally two days before I was scheduled to fly out. I don't know <laughs> if you guys remember that tsunami in 2011. Yeah. So I took that as a sign from the universe that I wasn't supposed to go. I waited it out for a week or two and they were talking all about that radiation. And then I ended up at Winnipeg. So. So when you work with young players today, do you get a sense that kids and their parents in a higher prevalence than maybe in years past feel like they have this entitlement that when their kids work hard, like they deserve to make the team that they deserve to, to play, that they deserve to get all these things. Do you feel that? Uh, for the people that get it, that like get it, they, I don't really feel that to be honest, because most of the ones that don't get it, they don't actually work hard. They don't, they mm -hmm. may think they work hard or they tell themselves they work hard, but you know, the majority of kids that I work with are now like anywhere from seven to 15. I don't work with a lot of the, the older guys just cause that's not the market mostly. And plus it's like, I don't want to be catching bullpens for dudes that are legit and throwing, you know, 85. Mm -hmm. So, um, I love working with those guys even more than the younger guys, just because I want to help somebody get to the next level if they want it. But to answer your question, I mean, because I work with those younger guys, most, most of the time when you find that 12 year old that shows up and it's yes, coach, and it's, it's whatever, wherever you need me, coach, usually those kids don't have the entitlement. They have a different if factor when you run into those kids and they know what they're willing to do and they get it at a certain age. And most of the time, the, the dad is out of the way. Those are the sweet, the, the, the cool, you know, cases that you have that you really want to help out, like, and do everything you can for those types of people too. Those are rare. Yeah. I'm sure you, uh, you guys are both aware too. I see a lot of the opposite of that though. You know, the dads that, are, the dads that are, you know, separate themselves into games, like when the game's going on and they're not the coach of the team, like those guys seem to get it, but it's always the dads that are, that are bringing their kid and working with their own kid that their kids seem to get it a little bit more. The, you know, we've got a 12 year kid who's, you know, his dad is hard on him. You know, it's, it's like bringing flashbacks of my childhood almost where it's like, like your dad's hard on you, but you know, if you can, if you can handle it and you can take the criticism and you, you know, it's like a, it's like a more of a, 
I don't want to say motivation for the kid because I don't know what motivates any of these kids. You know, essentially it's, it's all, it's all individualized, but the ones that drop their kid off and stay out of the way, it seems like their kids are just it, not deer in headlights, but real, really, you know, passive to where the kids that are, the kids that are, you know, where their dads are taking them and they're, they're telling their dad, they want to come to the cage. You know, I think it's a give and take. They kind of reflect that, you know, it's a mirror of each other. The, the ones that are passive, the dads are great. You know, they let, they let me do what I want to do. They let, you know, they give me the reins, the keys of the car, say, you know, whatever you think he needs, like, let's do it, which is great, but I can't do it all myself. You're not paying me to live with the kid. He's not my kid. Like the ones that really take control, the dads, not just dads, there's moms that we have moms that come and work with their kids too. And brothers and siblings, you know, siblings, whatever. The ones that, the ones that are really, you know, giving them the tools, like bringing them to the cage. If they don't want to come, then it's, you've already sealed their faith. They don't want it. They don't want it bad enough, but ones that are bringing their kids to the cage, you know, bringing them to practice, extra practice, not just the one-on-one stuff. Those are the kids I see that really like take off. Uh, It's, I love the dads that, that'll give me the, give me the keys to the car with their kid. But then when I give them back, they take them and then they, they run with that. And there's, I think those are two types of, two types of parents right there. The ones that'll, you know, okay, the 30 minutes is over. And we go home until next week. And the ones the 30 minutes are over and we're going to stay an extra hour because we want to hammer it home. And I'm going to reinforce stuff like that, that, that Bobby or Isaac or Dan were saying to, to my son. And, you know, if we're going to, we're going to get our money's worth out of this, it's, it's tough to, you know, I like both sides of the parents in that regard, but it's hard to pinpoint. No, it's some kids just have it. What is it? What is it? Maybe they're hey. cyborgs and they actually have key and they actually have keys. Do you think, do you think, do you think we'll have <laughs> Bobby, this is a question for you since you're a big conspiracy guy. Do you think we will have replicants like in Blade Runner? And if so, will they be allowed to play sports with the rest of the humans? <laughs> I've never seen reference Blade Runner. I've never seen it, but I do think they're going to be able to, I think technology and science is going to go so far in the next 50 years that, Sports we know now are going to look nothing, nothing like mm. what they're going to look like in 50 years. You know, the automated strike zone, the it is just that's inevitable. That's inevitable. But guys, just if they're not, if they're not one and the same with their technology, they're going to be. You know, you had a you had a hip replacement. Well, guess what? We're going to stem cell you a new hip in six months, and you're going to be like a brand new person. Yes, yeah, you can be insane. Do you consider yourself a cyborg, Isaac? I, I love that question when people are like, well, isn't that like an advantage that you got a hip replacement? I'm like, then you have like a bionic leg. I was like, yeah. It's you, can't a big- re- you can't break that titanium. <laughs> I mean, you could, you could, if they, they were like scared that I think I was going to be paralyzed and like have to, they're going to have to pay me workers comp at a big league level for the rest of my life or something. That's the only thing. Yeah. I could do. But back to, back to the parents, you know, like I love, I don't know if you guys have heard what Mike Trout said, but like, um, you know, like little memes or whatever you see on Instagram. I I remember seeing a quote from Mike Trout and it was like, when I was 10, my dad saw that I wanted to play baseball and he, he just got out of the way. He stopped coaching me and he let other coaches coach me. And I, you know, obviously Mike Trout is MVP. He's one of the highest paid players. But like, when you look at Mike Trout, the dude emanates a smile 
every day that he's on the field. You know, yeah, he's always having a blast. And I tell all my players to, you know, we have two rules at Made Baseball. First rule is that you always got to have fun. Like, you have to be having fun. If you're here and we just did that half-hour lesson and then you're saying, Mom, Dad, I want you to, you know, could we rent the, the cage for one more hour and, and work on what Coach just said? Like, you know that that kid's starting to take ownership and that parent is allowing the kid to drive the boat. And if the kid is driving the boat at 10 and 11 and saying, like, I'm ready to go, can we go? Like, I'm already ready. I know my I have to be at my game at 9 o'clock. I'm ready at the door at 8.20 because I know it takes us 15 minutes and coach says we have to be early. So when you get a kid that starts clicking on all cylinders like that, the parent doesn't have to do a lot. They already set the foundation. They, Yeah, I don't want the parent to drop the kid off unless the kid asks for that because I've created a relationship with him where we know what we're doing and the parent trusts me at that point. And it's better because the kid's taking so much ownership that like it's better that they drop them off at this point. Up in, up until, you know, 10, 15 lessons or something prior to that, it's better if the, the dad engages in the first few, sees what my message is, sees what my style is, sees how the kid interacts. Then the next few sits on the bench, stays out of the way, hears what I say so he can reflect that at home and be like, remember, yeah. remember coach said this. <clears throat> but the ones that are trying to coach over you, those are the funnest when, you know, you – get hired as a, for a lesson. And then they're trying to coach over you like in the first two lessons. And you're like, why, why did you hire me? I don't know why I'm here. If you're trying to coach your kids. Yeah. Those are hard. Those are hard. Yeah. And there's no good way to approach it. I mean, you you have to approach at some point, but often when you do it, that's just like, you don't see them again. Even if you do it politely, it's just tough. Um, I like how Bobby used the keys, the car analogy and used keys, the boat. So I got to think of my own. It's going to be like keys to the, (laughs) I don't know. The tractor. Yeah. You got to let the kid drive the tractor, man. You got to let him, uh, you got to let him take the hang glider out and sail That's around. Right. <laughs> it's right. funny Whatever. you said your, your first rule that your first rule, my first rule when I have my parent meeting is no crying. I don't tolerate it. I can't, I can't handle it. I mean, unless you get hit in the face, I, I refuse to tolerate tears mm-hmm. for, you know, no one's yelling at you. No one's telling you you're stupid. You're, you're getting yelled at or you're getting disciplined because you're undisciplined and you're not giving effort when you're supposed to be giving effort and your parents are paying for it. So I'm not going to sit here and let you run, you know, run amok. You know, this isn't, this isn't public school. You know, this is private school. Like you're here for the discipline. You're here for the structure. You're here because this is what your parents want. You know, you either, you won't want to be, you want to be here or your parents want to be here. And for either one, I have to honor both of those you know, you're not going to show up. And I give this speech to the not eight, nine, 10 year olds, the youngest kids. And the first thing that happens, they get hit. And I'm like, what's rule number one, They're like no crying. And then they toughen up a little bit and they bite their lip. And then we kind of go on, you know, it's one thing to get hit in the face or hit in the back or pegged and start tearing up. And it's another thing when a coach disciplines you and tells you to run harder, they start to cry and they start to, you know, they look around for someone to help them out. Like, I shouldn't be getting yelled at. No, you should be getting yelled at. The real world is going to yell at you. You know, people are going to discipline you. This is how life is. Like, it's almost, you know, those, like the kids you said, the kids, the kids that like that, I don't want to say like getting yelled at, but the kids that you yell at them and they're, they're looking you in the face and they want to know why and they want to apply it. Those kids, you almost don't need the coach because they're going to take everything you say and run with it. 
And it's like you try and get everybody into that mold and then not everybody fits in that mold. But it's funny that if your rule, our rule number ones differ a little bit. I'm just, I lay it out in the line real quick for some of these, for some of the parents. Well, and, yeah. and I think most of us, we have like, I think we all know that the vast majority of parents are really great. Like I had awesome. the vast majority. Yeah. The vast majority of parents really get it. And I think at least my goal, and I think with you guys as well, is just, I think a lot of times if you didn't play sports at a really high level or you didn't have something like Isaac, your story's like tragic. I mean, I can't imagine like that's just, that's really hard to get past. I think a lot of parents and, and players, even when they have good intentions, sometimes they just don't realize how profoundly unfair sports are. That it don't, it, like, a lot of times it just does not matter how hard your kid worked and that they did all the things right. Like sports just don't care. Like you can be stuck behind Alex Rodriguez playing third base in the Yankees organization and you could be a big leaguer for 10 other teams, but you're stuck and it just doesn't happen, you know, or and maybe you get hurt and you get your chance, whatever. And, um, or you never get your chance, you know, like I had Tommy John twice, you got signed four times and they all told, you no, even though you're clearly capable of playing the game, like, and, and that's, I think that's one of the hard things where a lot of times players want to push back and be like, no, like I deserve this. And it's, you have to like, you can feel that obviously it's not invalid, but you have to, you have but, to understand what you're getting into. I think sometimes without like the having done it yourself, you don't know what you're getting into. Right. And going back to your point, Bobby, I think, I think, you know, everybody's got their own structure. My, my two rules are got to have fun. Like it's your responsibility. If you're not having fun out here, then you need to find whatever it is that does get you excited. Baseball might not be for you, but you mm -hmm. have a responsibility in anything that you do in life to find something fun about it. That's just something that's an of FTP, a fundamental thought process that we that we always have. And the second one is that you got to always do your best. And that's what I used to say you have to get better, but that doesn't really resonate for a nine or a 10 year old. Like you want it to, but you don't have to get better. You have to do your best when you're 15 and 16. And now you're trying to make varsity. You have to get better. Like even 13, 14 serious players, like that's the second rule. It evolved into that. But when it comes to the crying, I always say you can cry. I say you can cry if you get pegged in the back. If you don't need to cry, don't cry. Because now I'm allowing them to take the ownership. I'm not saying there's no crying. If Now it's on you, bro. Like, it's on you if you can't hold the tears back. It's your choice. But what, what always happens to the pain? It goes away. So that's another thing that is, like, kind of a fundamental thought process I teach them. When something happens, we always stay calm. If they miss a fly ball and it goes off their glove and hits them in the shoulder and they're nine years old and they took it pretty hard and they start falling nobody freaks out we all walk and I, I tell my other players I say guys what happens to the pain and then he breathes and then he's fine in 20 seconds you know and he's still hurting a little bit but then he became a man right there a little bit more because he oh he wanted to cry really bad but he learned from the last time that he probably doesn't have to cry and then to me he's the one now that's making the decision he's not being forcefully told that he can't cry <clears throat> so then you start having people separate themselves. The criers are going to cry anyways, but hey, they're probably going <laughs> to weed themselves out. So, yeah, you know. the criers are going to cry. But when it comes to striking out, you're, you're not allowed to cry. Like you're sitting on the bench and it's going to get worse for you if you cry. And that's something I make oh, that's super the, clear. Yeah. That's, you, know, I, you could give examples of that kid. That kid does, 
that kid does everything you don't want him to do. That kid, right. you know, strikes out, cries, and also goes around the fence and sits next to his parents because he struck out. Yeah. And it's – And they're giving know, him a Gatorade right after he strikes out, saying, <sighs> saying oh, that was a bad You don't earn ball. that. You need to earn that Gatorade. The yeah. Gatorade is – you drink hose water. I want guys that drink out of the hose. I don't want guys that have bottled water as I sit here with bottled water and coffee. <laughs> I don't want you're, those guys. you're soft, Bobby. You're soft. Um, I am. You know what? I am soft now. Let's talk about running back to the dugout after a strikeout. Are you for this or against this? What level? Any level. I am not. I, I'm not. Isaac, for it. Isaac, go first. Yeah. Okay. I'm not against Why? it. I but like when when you strike out, like we we say we say you know why did this happen for me, not why did this happen to me. Like that is a fundamental thought process also, you know, I'm big on teaching mindset. Like, so are you, Dan, I know you are, but like, if you, if you create the mind and the warrior, then he's going to be a lot more attuned to all the circumstances and all the results that he produces. If, 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 if he's striking out and he's thinking, Oh, it's okay. Coach said, don't cry. Like I'll learn from this. And I'm running back to the dugout with a smile on my face. Like, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking, I'm looking for you to just move on and be a, be a solution finder, not a problem haver, you know, not, Oh, that, that was a terrible call. Like, yes, you're pissed that the umpire just called the ball six inches off the plate and it was clearly a ball, but you're also a solution finder realizing, okay, umpires are not very good. Most of the time, this guy's given six inches off the plate. One, I'm going to go talk to my pitcher and I'm going to say, throw the ball outside because he's giving you six inches off the plate. Hopefully he's going both ways for both teams. And two guys, crowd the plate because he's calling the ball six inches off the plate look to go the other way like that's not a dude that's a baby that's a dude that's a teammate he goes in and if you got a 10 year old thinking like that that's champion like he's gonna be great like he comes in saying dude this umpire sucks like you, you that was a terrible call like yes you can say that but then you have to follow that up with be ready to hit the ball the other way bobby what do you got <clears throat> So it's going to depend on age for me. The older guys, if you're if you're in high school, you don't run back to the dugout. Now, really, the, I pre- that surprises me. That surprises me. Keep going. No, you don't. You don't run back to the dugout. You just that's that's what uh, it feels like a it feels like a look at me type thing. Like I struck out, but I'm going to run back. Like I'm in the game. Like all right, just walk back. Like that's not how we play the game at the. Because I always say, how do we you know watch the big leaguers, watch what they do, and if you're watching them, those guys don't run back to the to the dugout. So as a high school kid, I feel like you transition from the try-hard youth player to now you're a baseball player. Like, you're not just a kid playing baseball. You're in high school. You play in high-level baseball. Like, you are now either have to become a baseball player or learn how to become a baseball player. So, so you're saying you allow guys, them? You allow them to – the younger guys, you allow them to do it or you allow tell, the guys the, tell them school, to do it? I allow the guys in high school to walk back. If you, wa- if you want to run back, run back. That's, you know – but the younger guys – I, we, I don't say it. I just preach hustle. Like you're the first one on the field at your position. You're the first one off the field into the dugout. So if I'm going to preach that and they end up running back to the dugout, it's a, it's almost a non-teach. If they run back to the dugout, great. If they walk back to the dugout, but they're pouting, they're going to get, they're going to get something said to them. If they walk back to the dugout and they just, you know, they're just whatever they've, they've brushed it off. Like they struck out, they did whatever. Okay. But if they're like, it's, it's body language. I I'm, you're almost teaching body language. you you know, you got to read body language. 
I know co- we have youth coaches that want the kids to run back to the dugout, and that's fine. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna oversee that because at least it's it's more of a discipline. It's a like a structure as opposed to uh, they walk back to the dugout because they're pouting. Kind of what Isaac said, where you're you know process what happened and then move on. Mm-hmm. You know they're if they're walking back and there's you know swearing or whatever a kid would say like a 10 year old kid because they didn't like the umpire or they got tears in their eye like tearing up in their eyes that's when you say something like hey well, that's not what we do here that's not how you do it but I almost think it's a non-teach you know I I've never seen anybody in pro ball run back to the dugout so I guess that's yeah you know well it'd be, it'd be a contradictory for me to say you have to sprint back to the dugout because you've embarrassed yourself at the plate like you've you've embarrassed the whole team. Get your ass back in the dugout. Well, I like so I can appreciate like the discipline thing. Like if it's just like this is what we do, I can appreciate that to an extent. But for me, I don't I don't want to separate youth players from high school players or from anyone else. Like baseball is a weird sport where you can be nine and have the same actions as a big leaguer. You're just not as Mm-hmm. powerful and as good at them, but you can have basically the same pitching mechanics, like basically the same swing and you do all the same things on the field that they do. So I don't feel a strong need to like make youth players do something different. And I certainly think a lot of times the jog, like when coaches tell them you need to hustle back, like you said in preaching hustle as an overarching quality is good. And if that becomes they hustle back on their own accord, so be it. That's I, like you said, I think that's fine. But telling every kid's like, we need to jog back to the dugout. I think that's just eyewash. And I don't love using the term eyewash because too many non-baseball people have been using it. So it's like, you don't even know what eyewash is, guy. Like, stop talking about eyewash. Like, you're eyewash by when you say eyewash. But I think it's I think it's that to a big extent where it's like, that's fake hustle. Like, that's not important in baseball. And I also think right. there's something to be said for walking back that shameful 40 feet. I think that does something to you. Like you shouldn't be happily running back to the dugout. You should feel that 40 feet, that 40 foot walk and you shouldn't pout and you shouldn't have bad body language. Like you said, like those are good coaching points, but I don't think there's a, I don't think you need to jog back as a, I don't think that's a good team policy. I don't, and like you said, no one in pro ball does that. No one in college ball does that. It just seems like something, I don't know. It's too raw, raw for me. And I don't, I don't see, like you said, go ahead. Yeah. So, what do you got on the what do you got on pitchers walking off the mound versus jogging off the mound? Uh, I don't remember which. Do you have a care. do you have a preference? Does it matter? Like no. there's guys that get off the mound, you know, strike three, end of the inning, and they sprint back in the dugout, and it's almost like uh, it's like a little pick me up. You know, I don't mind it. And then there's guys that strike somebody out, put their head down, and walk walk off the walk off the mound back to the dugout, like. Well, that's fundamentally different too, Isaac. What do you think? But I think it's fundamentally different. Like it's not you're not being punished. Like you finished your job. Like you get off the field however you want to get sure. off. Isaac, no, I'm think? with you. I, I think it's the same. I think it's just stylistic. There, you know, that's part of the art of baseball. There's the art and science. And sometimes, I mean, I had games where I was, I would throw that, I would be cruising. You know, like when I did play. I remember specifically, I was playing Fargo, and like I was striking everybody out that day and I was running off the mound, just jogging, you know, I just had adrenaline pumping through my veins. And if I was getting strike three, especially if it was like a called strike three, I kind of like, I'm ready to get back in there and just get right back out here, guys, go through a couple back to back solo bombs and I'll just get me back out to pitch more. So what about, what about when, what about when you get taken out of a game? 
So you could, you know, you give up a couple, couple hits, coach comes out to get, grab the ball. Do you care if the guy jogs off, walks off? I don't, I wouldn't jog in that moment. I wouldn't I jog know. either. Somebody, uh, Danny Bourne, he was the left, the other lefty that I really looked up to, um, when I was a rookie in Windy City. Um, he said something that stuck with me forever. And I was super grateful that he, uh, he, he said this, he's like, it's always easier to walk off the field with your head down and not look at the crowd much harder to keep your head up and like see the eyeballs of the crowd. And, you know, especially after you just gave up back to back bombs or something like that. And I remember that forever. So I think just having that mindset every single time you have some failure in baseball that I'm, I'm not going to put my head down because that's me hiding under my bill of my hat. I'm going to look at, I'm, I'm going to feel this. I'm going to feel this and I'm going to process it. And I'm going to start already being in the problem and the solution finder mindset. Like I'm going to be figuring out what I need to do the next time because I know baseball includes a lot of failure. I've already been taught this by all my coaches. You know, I, this is, I'm feeling it right now in this moment. So I didn't, I never, I never ran off if I ended up uh, getting pulled after a bad outing. Yeah. I think like you said, a lot of it goes to your, where your energy's at. And when you just like you're cruising and your body's moving fast and you're moving fast and you're, you know, bang, like strike you on the corner. Like it just feels like in flow to just get off the mound quick. But in other situations, it's just definitely not that way. So were you, were you guys something I, I, I hated, man? Like I, I fell victim to this just because of influence and being a younger guy, but like there was just the guys that would strike out and, you know, come in and you knew that it was going to be part of their baby routine to just go and slam everything. And it's just oh, like, yeah. or the whole, like put the, put the face in the glove and yell the F word as loud as you can, because that somehow validates you as a baseball player and you shouldn't have had that bad outing. So now you have the, you have the uh, entitlement to say that. I'm, I know all of us have done that before, you know, but some guys raw, it's just like. How raw is it? How, how authentic is it? Because we, right. we've all played with the guys. Exactly. Like, I was never a throw-my-helmet guy. I just put the helmet down. Yeah, I, like, I internalize a lot of what, what was happening. But if it's not – if you, you can tell if a guy is being authentic or if he's being eyewash, how Dan mm-hmm. says, you can tell. And if you, if you can't tell, then you're probably the guy that's being the eyewash. So it's, you play with guys. I mean, we've all played with guys that come in, like you said, and they, <laughs> they cause a scene in the dugout and it's like, dude, sit down and shut up. Like right. nobody cares that about your at bat. You're also four for your last seven. Right. Really? Like <laughs> you're not, you're nobody. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about you. It's the, it's the eye guys that, that want to cause, you know, everything's got to be about them. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, hundred percent. I had one guy in, in Fargo, he, every at bat for the entire season, come in, have a blow up. It's like, dude, you, you strike out all the time. You're hitting two ten. Like you should be used to this. Like sh- it was, it was the worst. <laughs> like, What's with Fargo? Why does everybody, why does our Fargo bring out the worst in everybody? Uh, his name was Kyle. He was the worst. Uh, I, I know who that is. I already yeah, know Yeah. About. It's like, it's like, come on, man. Like, you like strikeout number ninety four. Like you're just as pissed. I mean, come yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. That's a milestone strikeout. Yeah, I mean, it, it can be hard to break kids of those habits too. Like sometimes they just like I had a kid who just punches glove after every bad pitch. It's like you can just visibly get mad all the time, and you talk and talk and talk about it, and it's just they're tough habits to break, and they can be built throughout 
I don't know, I guess a long <laughs> adolescent I, uh, period in baseball. When you see those kids, like the ones that just have just constant bod, bad body language, like I, I just, I say something to them that I hope just hits them like a ton of bricks. I'm like, you know, when you do that, it makes your parents look bad. It makes me look bad. It makes everybody on your team look bad. And it, worst of all, makes you look bad. But it's making everybody look bad when you're acting like a baby out there. So figure it out. Yeah. Well, and I college the, coaches will just go, see ya, off their right. list too. Exactly. Exactly. I go with the more uh, physical discipline where if the kid, like if a kid does that, I make the whole team run. Yeah. And okay. Like you want to, you want to act like that? Like everybody else is going to suffer for it. And you know, we always do sprints and you know, the conditioning or whatever. And my big thing is don't be last. And I never, I always say the kid that's last, you know, if you're last, you got to do it. You got to do it again. And I don't think I've ever once made the kid that's last do it again. I just want that kid that's last, even if he's 10 times slower than everybody else to work at his maximum capacity. Like mm-hmm. I want him to try and not be last. And it's, yeah, for sure. know, it's hard to it's incentivize someone who's always first. You know, it's the kids that are last never want to be last. Those kids always try. The ones at the bottom usually try. It's the ones that have the talent where they're going to be first or second in the sprint race no matter what. Like, how do you incentivize that kid to want to be first, like want to be secretariat 50, 50 yards ahead of everybody else instead of just beating the second place kid by two steps because he knows he's fast. It's hard to incentivize that kid. I think if if that kid gets it, you pull him aside and you say, you know, you're a stud. I want you to pull the best out of your teammates. I want you to, I want you to cruise back with the guy that's in the back and he's going to look up and be like, what? Johnny's usually in front and he's by me right now. And Johnny's saying, Hey, Joey, let's go. Come on, let's go. And then all of a sudden the dude that's the stud of the team is humble without an ego he falls back and he's picking up his teammates. That's what I see as being like a Mike Trout guy, you know, like Mike Trout could be first, but he's the type of guy that would be like, I want to win this whole damn thing. I need everybody on my team to be great. So I'm going to go and I'm going to try to pick up my teammates and have us be a cohesive unit. That's not something you get from very many players because if they are really good, then that's a pretty deep level thought for a younger guy, you know? So so definitely yeah, being lost sure. that like that that uh that concept of team is being lost like that concept of group is being lost kids have their own personal trainers they have their own private lessons you know they do everything is is individualized and it's like hey if you went to the park and you were playing against a group of kids that you wanted to beat regardless of who's on your team like you're trying to pick them up like you're trying you know you play a wiffle ball game and you're even if the kid the worst player on your team is the worst player in the city. Like you're trying to pick that kid up because he's going to help you win. And that, you know, I feel like as, as much as we've advanced in uh, training and everything we know about everything, we know about everything in as a relation to training for sports, you lose that, like that authentic authenticity of what it, what it means to be like part of a group and like really compete as, as a group. And it's, it's hard to replicate in a, in a, in a setting I think where everybody's essentially being taught individualized in a a team setting. I got something to say about that. I think, I think, you know, you get this, like, when do I stop daddy ball? And it's like, daddy ball is got this, it has this really bad connotation now for the majority of people that start getting into baseball for real. But the, 
daddy ball is amazing when you have the right dad that has the right interaction with his son, even if he pushes him, like he just understands. And then he's able to create a team of eight year olds and keep that team together and keep that team loyal to each other until they're 12, 13. Like, I don't care how good those eight year olds were. If they weren't that good, even if the training isn't great and the dad doesn't know everything, if there's a structure and there's a consistency, by the time those kids are 12, they're competing with anybody in their local neighborhood because they know they can trust each other and they, they, they're not club hoppers. They're not looking for the next best, best thing. They're, they're committed to what they do and they, they have that ownership together. I think that's, that's something that like is really rare, but for example, I don't know. You guys know Matt Libertori. Have you heard of him? I know. I've heard, heard, the heard the name. Heard the name. Yeah. So he he played. Uh, he's a number sixteen overall pick for the Tampa Bay Rays. He just got traded. Um, he's a tall left-handed pitcher out of high school. Um, in two thousand eighteen, he was number sixteen, and he just got traded to the Cardinals um, for Jose Martinez and a couple other guys. But he uh, he's supposed to be in the big leagues this year if they're they're playing. They were, he was projected to be, but my boy John Heisinga, who you guys maybe have heard of before, um, out of Phoenix, he was the one that trained him, and he played with uh, Nolan Gorman, who's now also a stud with the Cardinals. They've like found their way back to the same affiliated organization, but that was his catcher, and they were a team just like I'm talking about. It was a daddy ball, but like they stuck together since they were nine years old and by the time they were 14 I think their team name was the stealth and uh, they had another kid named Calvin Shapira who hopefully gets drafted this year too and he he was a lefty that I worked with but these kids just had this cohesive you know really strong team that was ran by four dads but they there was one guy that was driving the boat and the other dads allowed him to do that and like you know he was the manager and they just had they had a good thing. Like they were the best team in the state. So, yeah, I, I mean, I agree. And you've seen that like at different tournaments. I mean, I, I remember this one when my last team was, I think 13 or 14. You, um, we faced this team from this small town in Illinois, like a, like a nothing town that like consistently placed really, really well. in like the junior high state championships and the high school state championships. And you just know that it's not like seven big leaguers came from this town they just and they were all coached by dads, but these teams came out and they were fearsome. They could field, they could run, they played the game hard. They were very hard nosed team and they were very hard to beat. And that was an example just like yours. Like whatever these dads were doing, they had a system, and these kids were good for each other. And the whole the whole organization was just extremely strong and disproportionately strong for how big the town was. Because you look at this, you're like, how do you have this many good ball players in a four thousand person town? Mm-hmm. Or whatever it's like, it doesn't add up, but yet there they are. So yeah, it just <laughs> I think it's harder it's probably, to get that. It's probably because they're just having fun too, and there's no there's no <laughs> business agendas, you know. When you're charging, when you're charging monthly, fun. yeah, winning's fun. And when you're when you're charging monthly fees, then like there's all these expectations and all these things that you have to talk to parents about. You know, it's like it's challenging. I have a question for you guys. Um, did you guys get lessons growing up? No, my first lesson was when I was 15 or six, I think 15. And my dad took me to learn a curveball from a guy that later became a, a great person in my life. And he owned a baseball academy. I ended up working there. But that was the first lesson I got when I was 15. I think I only got three or four of them. And that was it. It was the only thing I had. It just wasn't, you know, it was different. What about yeah. you, Bobby? Uh, my first lesson was actually a speed. I went to a speed guy. I didn't have a hitting guy until, <clears throat> excuse me, until I was a, 
senior in high school. And I actually really like my dad and I also talk about this guy just ruined my swing. Like I was, I, if you were, I was the type of guy, like if you were going to, if I went to you, like I was going to, I was going to try and apply what you told me. So if you gave me an instruction, I was going to try and apply it. Really? This guy. You're yeah. like the most hard-headed person. And, well, One of those, um, what's and happened? To a fault, right? I did know, he, ruin, did he ruin your personality? He made you the man you are now. Well, it was like, you know, I my dad conspiracy me, theories. Yeah, right. I do. I do. But my dad sent me to this guy, you know, because he's like, you know, I want to pass my son off. Yeah, I got, I took my son at probably what he felt like as far as he could take me. And in hindsight, I wish I would have just stayed with what my dad was teaching me because it worked. Um, and they sent me to some guy who was feeding us, you know, without getting into it, a bunch of lies about who he was working with, you know, what should be working. And I'm trying to apply it. And I ended up being a thinker instead of a doer. And I was always just a doer. Like I was good enough athletically to, to do what I did. And I was successful with it. And it's like, I was just given bad information. And, you know, looking back on it, I know now as someone who teaches that it was bad information, but it's also, I would never want to teach a kid like that, that this is the way to do it. Like, this is what you should be doing because, you know, I work with so-and-so big leaguer, um, you know, and it, it was under the guise of he worked at the, the White Sox have an academy out here. Um, so he was an instructor there and, and he's not employed by the White Sox. I don't want to give off the impression that he's like a White Sox hitting coach in the big leagues. Mm-hmm. He was just an instructor there. Um, but you don't know, like, you know, my dad and I didn't know we were just, we assumed this guy knew what he was talking about. Um, we were referred to him and I'm going there and then it ended up my dad and I butting heads because my dad was trying to deprogram me out of that stuff as I was struggling when I started my senior year and I had some accolades and I had some, some notoriety in the, like, you know, scouts giving you questionnaires, stuff like that. And my dad's like, stop doing this shit, start doing what made you good. And I was like, well, this guy, this is what he said. Like, stop, stop telling me what to do. This is what this guy told me to do. So it ended up causing friction. I mean, that's an extreme example, uh, just from my own personal experience, but yeah, you got it. That's why I'm so, that's why on Twitter, I am so adamant that some of these guys are just selling snake oil to parents, two kids telling you, this is how you do it because I had that guy. And if I could go back and confront that guy, like, it wouldn't just be verbal. It would be actually like, that's how upset I am thinking about how much this guy was just full of shit. And you're just liar. drinking, you're just chugging his snake oil. You're just I like was. And, chugging, and it's, and chugging it's it. indicative. It's indicative of what social media is now where people have a platform and they can Bobby tell is a something. fractured man today because of how much He's snake right. oil, his snake oil overdose as a child. But it's, it's indicative of what happens on Twitter where these guys put out information and they say it like fact, and then parents, how are you, if you're a regular parent, or you didn't play in the big leagues as a parent, you don't know, you're just going to do, you know, you, you assume these guys have your best interests in mind, and most of them are assholes, and that's what I get into on Twitter, and that's why I well, constantly attack we can't some say of that, these guys. We can't say that most of them are. People don't some work them, with, with but the ones that, with the loudest, yeah. yeah, some of them with the loudest mouthpieces are the biggest, like, the biggest frauds. When Mouth they're pe- teaching, they're, they have mouthpiece amplifiers. They're using like Dan, horns. You know damn well what I mean. Not I, mouth, I, mouth I, watch, <laughs> I watch. They're eye wash guys. Like that's why I'm. That is, you know, maybe it's it's just my own personal experience that has me like on edge when I read some of these guys tweeting out things that are blatantly wrong and blatantly leading people in the wrong direction. But 
Well, you how know, do you it's, how do you feel about uh, calling those people out? Like how like how does this get better? I feel because great right now, about it. Yeah, but but right now there's just a lot of divisive language on the web where guys are just calling each other out, mocking each other, making silly parody videos of other hitter, hitting. Like, is that better? It's not. It's not good. It's either. not. You know, it's, I a, don't know it's what, an embarrassing I don't, mess. What's happening on the web at the moment? The social media is terrible in general. But I don't know what the, I don't know what the right answer is. How do you call you know How do you call a guy out? respectfully and tell him he's wrong without there being some kind of, you know, confrontation. I don't think, you know, maybe it, I haven't had one of those, maybe because I'm the one that's leading the confrontation uh, personally. I just don't, I don't know what the right, you, it's my main point is that it's hard for parents and I don't know how to, I don't know how to advise them. Otherwise you have to, you can, you're going to trust who you're going to trust. And Sorry, if I'm, you trust I'm, me, I'm, I'm starting to laugh because I'm thinking about back to January when I was like questioning someone on Twitter. Cause I'm like, look, this, whatever you're saying right now is like ridiculous. And Bobby gets into it. And like, I'm still staying like pretty, pretty normal and like calm and just giving my responses. <laughs> and then like four, four messages later, like Bobby's like, meet me out back, meet me out back. I'll fight you right now. Come to my, I'm like, what is happening? Who are you? What is wrong? With a, you know, the, the loudest guy in the room draws the most attention. So if you if you're on Twitter, you gotta, you gotta be brash in my, you know, that's me. That's my, that's my Twitter persona, I guess. That's you. Um, Isaac, what do you think? How, how are you navigating? How do you feel about the, the interwebs <laughs> these days? I, I, I think it, it is a mess in a lot of ways, but I also think there's just so much great stuff out there too. And there's quality people that are, are putting stuff out that genuinely helps me. It helps, you know, just following some of the pages I follow gives me fresh things to talk about, fresh perspectives, you know, because any great player knows that you're never done learning. You know, if you're a great coach, you're never, you never figure it out. You're always trying to refine and sharpen your sword. So there's always some good perspective you can get from other people. Um, so, you know, but man, I think, I think it crushed the, the private coaching world and just the whole, I know everything when Josh Donaldson popped on to baseball tonight and said, Hey guys, if, if, if a coach teaches you, if you're, if you're 10 and your coach tells you to swing down at the ball, look at him and say, no, I was just like, okay, man, like, First of all, what are you telling the youth world? What are you telling your your kids about listening to their coach? You're telling them that, okay, if you're 10 and you watch this program tonight about Josh Donaldson, a freaking jacked professional hitter that has a specific approach to his launch angle because everything really changed after that as far as launch angle. That became the new buzzword. You know, I, I, I don't ever remember hearing the word launch angle when we played pro ball personally. But no. when Josh Donaldson did that, everybody all of a sudden knew how to hit a hundred percent better. And it was now like, you have to, you have to teach this way or else you're teaching the kids something wrong. And there is more than one way to skin a cat. Like you, you don't, if it works for you, then it works for you. If you're putting up numbers, if your coach teaches you to swing down at the ball, then stick with it just because you heard something else. Yeah. You can evaluate it. You can test it. You can consider it but do what's working for you because there isn't one right way to do anything. Like always, you know, there's the, the yeah. right way is showing up and having the right mindset, having the right work ethic, but there's, well, there's gotta be a right way to skin a cat. 
There's no <laughs> doubt. There's no doubt. There's a very devil, efficient de- way to devil s- creatures. Anyway, any way that causes them pain <laughs> is probably fine. Um, to but to your point, check. Isaac, I mean, and I agree. And my business partner actually like kind of wrote a retort about it back when that happened. But you don't like Donaldson doesn't have perspective on the youth coaching world because right. it's like, look, maybe because this is my business partner, Lucas used to do and still does. He's like, look, some kids come in with like the world's loopiest pop up swing ever. And if you tell them to swing down on the ball, which is some of the stuff that Alex Rodriguez has talked about on TV, he's like, yeah, I try to go down to the ball. That's telling the kid to mentally stop doing this so that maybe they do the right thing, which is, you know, you have an attack angle and then you get on plane with the ball. Like just because they say the word swing down doesn't mean the coach is an idiot and should right. be thrown the dumpster. Maybe he has a, a, a deeper intent that maybe he's not sharing with the kid every single time. Cause as a coach, you don't have time to say, Hey, do this. Now let me explain exactly why I'm telling you that. Like you explain as much as you can within reason, but sometimes it's just like, Hey, I want you, especially with a 10 year old, just like, I want you to think about swinging down the ball. And doesn't mean that you don't know how the swing works. And, and that's where a lot of these high level guys don't live in the world of instruction. So they don't really know what works. Like, right. and, and there's a, there's, there's a, a bunch of others who are on the web who've done the same thing. And I'm super anti Alex Bregman, but I appreciated when he like a year ago popped onto one of these Twitter discussions about hitting. And he's like, nah, see that swing there. That, that doesn't play. That doesn't work in the real world. And he was a hundred percent right. He was like commenting on someone doing one of those crazy launch angle swings, just pulling off the ball. Uh And it's like, and I'm like, yeah, I've never seen a guy swing like that in a, in a real pro game. Never. And neither has Bregman. And so like, good for you. When it comes to teaching something that advanced to a younger guy and thinking that's the right path to communicating how to get to that result that you want, it's like having a kid just learn how to dribble a basketball and then try to teach him how to do a Michael Jordan, you know, double pump fadeaway. Like, it's like, that's not the next thing you're going to work on. You're going to work on layups. You're going to work on trying to make contact. You're going to teach the kid to get on base and know how to score a run. Like you don't worry about hitting bombs like when you're 10. Yeah. And Donaldson uh, didn't either. If you look at his career track and this was one of the, one of the commentaries, I think a lot of people put out there. It's like Josh Donaldson didn't hit home runs until he was kind of like established. Like, I don't know if he was fully in the big leagues, but he was a really good contact hitter hitting like 10, 12 home runs a year in, in the lower levels of the minors. And then as it was like, okay, I'm really good at hitting 300 and hitting the ball hard. Now, well, maybe if we start to lift some of those, I go from 12 home runs to 20. And that makes a lot of sense. That's a smart thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's a very different conversation from a kid who doesn't make that much contact who is suddenly trying to make the contact that he does make leave the yard, right? Right. right. So That also yeah. is like – like brings me to another point, you know, like as private coaches, you know, if you're doing a lesson, man, especially if the parents right there and you just meet them and you're trying to make a good first impression or you want to make a good first impression. Um, you know, it's like sometimes you feel like you need to say something after almost every rep, you know, like, especially if the parents like, like you feel that you feel that parent being like, well, I'm here, like coach him. He needs to be, he just missed the ball five times in a row. Yeah. It's like sometimes you just got to let him fail. Like you just got to let him keep failing and you got to understand that's part of the process. I remember my pitching coach. He wasn't, he was just like my mentor and a pit, my, my coach in high school, but it, it, he was the closest I got to lessons. I would say, Hey coach, will you come, you know, uh, watch my bullpen on a Saturday? Like I want to get some extra work in. And he's like, if you get our catcher, I'll, I'll, I'll meet you there for an hour. And like, 
like he just had my back. So he would meet me there and he would say one or two things. And I felt like he was coaching me so well, you know, and now I, I realize like when I'm coaching, you know, especially if you're coaching like an eight or a 10 year old, it's like, dude, just say a couple things throughout the lesson and then just have fun and work because they can't process all this information. They have to really want to be a student of the game for you to validate or, you know, vindicate like saying so much, say, saying so much in a lesson. It's like he's eight. You can't teach him this much. You just got to keep hitting them grounders and letting them miss them. Yeah. The rise in, the rise in popularity and of how lucrative private coaching is, has made it almost like counterproductive for a lot of kids. I mean, I'm in Chicago, so it's a huge market and I can, I can count on one hand, the amount of guys I would trust teaching, hitting, or just in the cage with my own son. I don't have a son, but if I did, I wouldn't, there's just not an, there's not guys that I trust. Cause it's all, it's like you said, it's like they feel the need. They're going to say something. They're going to change something when really some of these kids just need the reps. They need to, they need one thing in that 30 minutes, you know, or hour that, to focus on. And I get a lot of kids, you know, I don't work with younger kids one-on-one. I'll, I'll usually wait till they're teenagers or high school kids. And I'll get some kids where they're, I don't want to say they're ruined as players, but the, the, the amount of it, the amount that they think they know and that they've been basically hammering home for the last however many years of their private coach, it's so counterproductive to the, to what you'd want them to do as a hitter, or you'd want to teach them as like a actual, baseball player as a, you know, I just don't, I, I have a hard, I have the private coaching world is, I have a hard time, you know, with some of these guys watching some guys give lessons or seeing some of the stuff that these guys put out. It's like, look, let the kid have a, have a little bit of athleticism. Let him, let his body figure out how to, how to do some stuff. You know, you don't, you, you like throw a kid in the pool and let him learn how to swim. And if he needs saving, then you get, then you get him out, mm-hmm. you know, and then you teach him one thing and then let him, let him try and figure it out how to swim. It's like, we don't let the kids swim. We don't give let him the keys, try and give, swim. Give him, the, give him the keys to the pool, Bobby. <laughs> give him the keys to the pool. You know, the, <laughs> when you learn how to drive, you take your seat, so take the kid to the cemetery. You can't kill anybody there. Take him to an empty parking lot. Like let him, let him, you know, figure it out. Give him the keys. Damn it. Yeah, take ownership. You want him to take ownership. You want him to get to get fired up with himself and realize that coach said this. He doesn't have to repeat himself. You know, that's another hard part, man. Like you, you specifically tell a kid to put his hands here, and he just keeps putting them here. And like the next one, you're like, no, but get those hands up. And he puts those hands back down. You're like, I know, I just told you four times in a row. Okay, like after I tell a kid twice now, like I just I stop and I just let him keep putting his hands. I like tell him specifically, I even like come over, I adjust, you know, physically a little bit so he can feel it and make sure he, I, he understands what I'm saying. After that, it's just like, if the parent's watching, you know, the parent has to understand that's kind of coming from them because like the, the kid is choosing not to listen to the coach at that point. And eventually like 10 swings later, all of a sudden his hands pop up. I don't know if you guys ever experienced that, but like, yeah, well, it's, like, yeah there's, there's that coaching, like, where I've seen guys be like, okay, pit, like get ready to throw, like stick your arms out. If you guys can see me like straight out, you know, T position or, you know, ball way behind you, glove way out in front. And it's like, look, nobody throws like that. Like, I don't know what you're trying to teach the kid. Just let him tell him to throw, 
and then make an adjustment off of, he's probably going to be close to what, how he should be throwing. But then when you hammer it into him, like, you know, this position arm straight out. So they start doing that every time. And then after so many reps, like if that becomes the way they throw and it's just not natural. And how do you fix that? Like, cause those, those fundamentals ingrained in the kid when he's younger and someone's telling him to do that, you get to 13 years old and you're looking at him like, what the hell are you doing? Who the hell taught you how to throw like that? And then they don't even remember because that's for as long as they've played, that's how they've thrown. Right. You know, get your hands up when you're hitting. And they, the kid puts his hands over his head and it's like, okay, he's doing, his hands are up. And he just keeps taking rep after rep after rep. And then he can't hit. And that's, that becomes like, he doesn't know. Now he's lost his scent, like, his equilibrium of his body. Like he doesn't know he's just been taught to do something instead of trying to learn for himself. Yeah. Um, Isaac, how can people find you on the web? Uh, they can go to madebaseball.com. Um, if they're interested, we have a nice little website there. And then what, what area do you, do you serve most? You said the LA area. Yeah, I'm in LA. Um, LA predominantly I'm out in Santa Monica, Santa Monica, Marina del Rey. And, uh, but we also go to Sherman Oaks. I have another couple coaches that coach with me. Um, another really good coach named Aaron Kurtz. Uh, he played for like 10 years. He's our pitching coach. Um, but yeah. And then also cagelists.com. If you guys have batting cages, go listen okay. to cage. Yeah. Cagelists.com. And also you have, uh, you have like some baseball classes going on right now too, don't you? I know. I think I'm a, I'm a guest in one of them next week, but tell me about your baseball classes. Uh, it's just virtual classes. I mean, um, you know, we hop on at 12 o'clock every day, Monday through Friday. And we spend a lot of time, like probably about the first half hour, just talking baseball, especially when I've been having the, the, the guest speakers on. They're hearing a lot of the same stuff, but now they're getting this opportunity to hear from guys that have played minor league baseball for nine, ten years. Um, this Today we have Izinga on. He's a good buddy of mine. On Wednesday we're going to have a scout named John Kazanis who played a big impact in my life. Um, and then on Friday we're going to have uh, Bo Pulverosa, who's a six-year – he's going into his sixth year of coaching high school baseball at the varsity level. Um, he's a head coach for a school in Arizona called Washington High School. Um, we, do, we do mindset – training so you know like these 10 year olds are getting 20 to 30 minutes of just getting out a journal and just concentrating on the idea that they have to work to create a champion mindset like you don't just decide that you have one it takes practice just like push-ups or working out you have to work out your mind it's, it's a consistent thing um, and then we do you know whatever baseball drills we can do to get creative with in our room without breaking any windows or walls um, and talk baseball IQ and then we always finish up with a little workout we've been doing some yoga sometimes we do little hit workouts kind of crossfit type stuff just whatever we can do with body weight get them and get them moving it's been okay. awesome very cool so if you're out there you're interested in working with Isaac or following up with him definitely check out his site madebaseballcagelist.com but yeah Isaac I appreciate you coming on the show man that was a good conversation it's good awesome. good to hear your story a little more in depth too because I knew a little bit about it but I didn't know that much and um, I think that's really important for people to hear. And I'm sure there's probably some kid out there with a, with a, some kind of chronic injury like yours that they can't control that, you know, maybe gets a lot of motivation from hearing that someone else like you stuck it out for a long, long time at a really high level. Yeah. I have another website that I just put together called hip replacement dude.com that really tells the whole story. And it's got a couple of videos of me jumping on boxes and stuff just cause 
it's important to understand that you can't just listen to what doctors say. You have to be your own person and you have to, you have to realize that sometimes doctors don't have your, your best interest at heart with it when it comes to still fulfilling your dreams. They're just going to tell you what they're supposed to tell you by the book. So. Gotcha. Bobby, take us out, my man. Isaac, this was good stuff. I appreciate it. Everybody uh, join us Wednesday. Dan, who do we have on Wednesday? Wednesday, we have uh, coach, the head coach at uh, the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, my alma mater, Liam Bowen, really good guy. So definitely tune in. We're going to talk a lot about college recruiting and the college situation and uh, what it's like um, playing for a smaller D1 and just hold that whole climate because I think there's a lot of misnomers about what D1 baseball is. So we're going to talk a lot about that on Wednesday. And I'm going to ask him a lot about how Dan was as a college player. And he didn't, co- and, he just, he didn't and, coach me. Oh. So he, no. Sorry. Find man. out who's got the keys to the bottle of eyewash. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe on here on uh, Twitter, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks, guys.